Um, but in any case, the, the way that this manuscript was probably used by uh, a highly educated uh, audience. Uh, some of the things that were discussed yesterday, I think, will, will touch upon what I'll be discussing today. Um, I would like to begin, however, I think the volume just went up even more, so great, okay. Um, I would like to begin with a somewhat more modern angle to this uh, manuscript um, by showing you this postcard from 1938, which is part of the Marche Drac archives at Utrecht University Library. Uh, it shows the beginning of the Veler Oinges in Jouwerbrek, as you can see, and was sent by the then uh, director of the National Library of Ireland, Richard Erwin uh, Best, to the first professor of Celtic studies in the Netherlands, Anton Gerard van Hamel. This card was only recently discovered uh, when the archives of Marche Drac were donated to Utrecht University Library last year, uh, and it gave us a, a great surprise as we long thought the correspondence by Best uh, to van Hamel had been lost to time, as opposed to the letters by Van Hamel to Best, which are still kept in the National Library of Ireland today. Now, the beginning of the card reads, um, My dear Van Hamel, dear and kind friend, and it continues to discuss the developments in the field, such as Bergen's uh, Ries lecture, and developments in the world at large, with a very passionate curse on the dictators of both Germany and Italy. It also, unsurprisingly, describes the weather in Dublin as cold, windy, and with torrential rains, so thankfully today we only had a, a, a drizzle, so that's a bit better. Uh, and in the year that we celebrate the centenary of Celtic studies in Utrecht, I think this card illustrates um, the close ties between Ireland and the Netherlands in Celtic studies, but it also signifies the, the continuing importance and attraction of a manuscript so grand as the Lower Breck. Now on to more serious matters uh, and the choice of title for this talk, uh, which is Och, Och, Estint uh, Altorthin. Uh, this is one of the marginal annotations left by Morge, and it can be found on page 105, the pre-final page of the Federe uh, Quaternion, uh, the epilogue. It continues with the line, uh, and we might translate it as something like, uh, sleep is harsh, as harsh as a stone is our pillow. I'm not a poet, but uh, someone I'm sure can do better. Uh, with its regular syllable count and alliteration, this is likely to be a citation from an existing poetic quatrain rather than a complaint by Morge himself, uh, although, of course, it could have functioned as both. Nevertheless, it aptly describes my relationship with the commentary to the failure uh, in this particular manuscript. When I first started working on this text for my PhD research in 2012, the Ljauerbrek copy of the, uh, Fehler, uh, the commentary to the Fehler was by far the most challenging one to work on despite the existence of Whitley Stokes' edition, uh, diplomatic edition of this text from 1880. The reason for this is that the edition does not quite capture the bewildering layout and structure of the commentary in this manuscript. Glosses and scolia have been added to each folio in a seemingly haphazard fashion, sometimes appearing pages away from the lemma they are supposed to illuminate. This layout raises questions about the exemplar Morocha was working with, about the way in which he copied his material, and about the usage he envisioned for it. In order to try and answer some of these questions, we will take a closer look at the layout of the commentary in the Leauerbrack. But before that, I would like to do a quick introduction of the text and have a quick look at the other manuscripts in which we find it. Now, the Fehler Eingesse, I'm sure, uh, needs no introduction, and we've heard a bit about it yesterday already. Uh, but a brief recollection of what we know of this text might be useful. The composition of the matrical text, the martyrology, is generally dated to around 800, and the text, or fragments of it, have come down to us in nine uh, manuscripts. The earliest of these is very likely to be the Ljauerbrek, 
although Rawlinson B505 and Lot 610 have also been dated to the early 15th century. Of the copy in the Lower Breck, Stokes said that the text uh, is often corrupt and that though oldest in date, it deviates most from the archetype. In all of these manuscripts, the martyrology is accompanied by copious glosses and scolia, which explain the martyrology itself, uh, or which localize and contextualize the saints that are mentioned in it. Most of these manuscripts do so in a continuous version of the martyrology, uh, with the additional material surrounding it either in the margins or interlinearly. Perhaps we already see here the distinction between glosses and scolia made in the Middle Ages, uh, which is already present in Isidore of Seville's work, uh, but it could also just be a matter of simple uh, or clever page layout. Now, some examples. Uh, Rawlinson B505 inserts short to medium length glosses interlinearly and lets the longer scolia follow the section for each month uh, of the martyrology. Laud 610 does roughly the same, only per day. Uh, Royal Irish Academy 23P3 uses signe de renvoi um, to link the longer uh, material in the margins uh, to uh, uh, their respective lemmata. UCD A7 starts interlinearly and then continues on after each day with longer material uh, uh, after the days uh, for however long the scribe Rurio Luinin felt was necessary, uh, and the same goes for NLI G10. There are also some exceptions. Uh, Rawlinson B512, for example, contains the preface, the prologue, and the epilogue to the Fevere Angusse, as well as the commentary, but not the Fevere proper. The commentary in this manuscript is presented in two columns with a reference to uh, the lemmata to which the material refers. Um, uh, and the two Brussels manuscripts then um, also contain material related to the Fevere, but they do so differently. Uh, Brussels 5100-04 uh, contains glosses and scolia, but divided into three parts. Smaller glosses are found interlinearly in the main text, and the scolia then are separated out into a prose section and a poetry section, both of which are se presented separately from the main text and from each other in the manuscript. Brussels uh, 5057, 5059 does not contain the failure proper, but it does contain the preface and the poetry excerpts from the commentary. This bird's eye view of the manuscripts that contain the commentary to the Fevere shows that most scribes have tried to create some order uh, when they were transmitting the text, uh, the glosses, and the scolia. Now, with this in mind, we should take a look at Murcha's copy of the commentary to see whether he too had such a systematic approach uh, to transmitting the commentary to the Fevere. At first glance, this version of the martyrology and its commentary feels uh, like it could be one of the most practical and therefore perhaps one of the most easiest uh, to navigate. Leower Brack is the only manuscript uh, in all these copies that provides practical information on uh, timekeeping in relation to the martyrology. For each day it gives the dominical letter and the Roman notation, as well as additional information on the calculation of time taken from Bede's De Tempora Ratione. Now this alone is something that requires further investigation, I think, but for now, let us say that similar practical and clever aids are not necessarily uh, extended to the navigation of the commentary. I hope you can see this. Um, I was counting on the big screens, but I hear they uh, run out of commission. Um, so uh, I'll be happy to send the PowerPoint to anyone who's interested. Uh, this is an image of me trying to make sense of the glosses and the scolia on a page and their respective lemmata. This is the beginning of the martyrology uh, for April on page 85, uh, and we can see that the page 
uh, contains uh, material to the month of January, uh, which uh, occurred some five or six pages earlier, uh, and material that does not seem to have a clear lemma at all. Um, and then also it contains, um, oh, no, this way, yeah. It contains uh, material that starts out interlinearly, moves into the right margin, and then moves over to the left margin uh, without apparent warning. There are glosses in the margins uh, for which the lines continue downwards, as one would perhaps expect, but also glosses that continue upwards, probably due to planning issues on the page. And one can only imagine the bewilderment uh, my students have to face every year I teach medieval Celtic paleography and uh, we use this manuscript. Now, I used a particularly bewildering example to begin with, uh, and it must be said that not all pages are as chaotic as this one seems. So it is perhaps illuminating to try and follow Morja during his process of transcription, which is something I've been wanting to do ever since uh, that very first sleepless night that this text caused me. So I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, uh, given to me by the Codices uh, Eximii to follow up on this. To understand the copying process of the martyrology and the commentary, we need to first understand the choirs in which they are contained. Thankfully, the choirs uh, that contain the Feder Oengesse seem to be the most straightforward ones of the entire manuscript. Both the notes by Powell, made before rebinding uh, the Leorbrek, and the examination by Tomter Horst, already referenced yesterday, some six years ago, agree that the Feder Oengesse is contained in two quaternions, the first running from page 75 to 90, containing the preface, prologue, and the first six months of the martyrology, and the second one running from page 91 to page 106, containing the last six months of the martyrology, as well as the epilogue and the poem associated with the Feder Angesa, even Sedisin Omne. Their unity is also confirmed by one of the page numberings, referred to as numbering C by Tom, uh, which runs continuously through these two choirs uh, from 28 recto to 43 verso. As mentioned yesterday, these are choirs E and F uh, in Tom's uh, schema. These choirs are generally, as was also discussed yesterday, uh, uh, considered to be the first two choirs that were copied by uh, Okunvish for the Lara Breck uh, and scribal marginalia found on page 86, 89, 95 and 101 have previously dated by Alconcarnan to uh, December 1408. We see that these dates do not provide us with a neat chronological uh, sequence following the folios or even the choir structure of this section, but this is perhaps not surprising, as Ocon Cannon already noted in 1973, um, that these marginalia are not amongst the ones that can be proven to be contemporaneous with the main text. There are potentially two other dateable events that are mentioned by Moroja in these, these two choirs uh, that have not uh, been previously noted that I know of, although I heard yesterday that uh, Liam Brenach is uh, compiling a new list of marginalia, so perhaps they have, uh, and I just did not know about this. Um, the first one uh, is this one um, on page 88. Uh, the finding of the, shri uh, the shrine of Kanyach with the relics of the saint in it. Uh, the most likely saint for this is Saint Kanyach of Ahavo, uh, County Leash, whose feast day falls on the 11th of October. Uh, considering the fact that this note appears near the martyrology section of May, we may draw the conclusion that this note is not related to the Feyre, uh, but rather one of Murcha's own uh, marginalia. Uh, and according to Padre Corian's uh, Feast Days of the Saints, the shrine of this saint uh, was burnt and completely destroyed by a local chieftain named uh, Dermot Magdala Fadric in 1347. Um, let's see, is it? Yeah, it is. Um, 
uh, reference taken from the Annals of Friar John Clin. Um, so it, it might be dateable, I have not found a way to date it yet, uh, but who knows, further research might uh, shine a light on this. Uh, perhaps Murcha is referring to a miraculous recovery of the shrines of the saints, but I'd be happy to know if anyone uh, knows more about the saints uh, than I do, um, uh, and to see if we can make it a dateable reference. On page uh, 90, on the very bottom, we find the note, uh, in tres la il galon inyo, uh, today is the, the third day after the calends, where calends is likely to stand for the new year, uh, and this gives us then the following chronology. Um, where the reference to the 3rd of January is nestled in between the reference to the 12th of December and the 29th of December. Now that we know more of uh, the choir structure and the chronology of writing, it is time to dive into Murcha's uh, method of copying uh, the commentary to the Feder Angese. How might he have gone about this? Uh, due to time constraints, I have mainly looked at the first choir, which runs up to the end of June. Uh, the choir starts with uh, the Middle Irish preface to the Federe and the prologue, uh, which are presented to us in two neat columns. The space that was left over at the end of the prologue, almost the entire second column, is put to good use by Okundlish, uh, as he used it to uh, start on the commentary um, for the month of January, uh, which was particularly busy due to the Feast of Christ's Circumcision, which was also uh, mentioned uh, yesterday, which generates a lot of uh, scolia. Uh, to make it easier for the reader, Murcha um, inserts references to the lemata in the main text uh, that the sections uh, belong to, and this remains common practice uh, for him on most pages where he inserts uh, scolia. This page also shows um, the uh, characteristic quatrains of poetry uh, that adorn the top and the bottom of the page, as previously discussed by Liam Branagh in the statutory lecture on the migratory nature of marginal verse. Now, while this page must have been quite nice and orderly to copy, it gets more complicated when we get to the first page of the martyrology proper on page 79, where it is combined with the commentary on the same page uh, for the first time. Now, you may notice that the marginal poetry at the top is replaced by citations from Bede's De Tempora Ratione. Furthermore, Okunish inserts uh, the material interlinearly for the first, days, uh, first four days of the martyrology, but has to move into the right margin uh, because of the length of the notes. From the 5th of January onwards, however, we see him using blocks in the right margin that are separated from the main text and headed by a reference to the lemma again. Do we see here already a change in tactics due to the complexity of the material? We also see that the sheer amount of material forces him to continue uh, in the margin below the martyrology after he had already finished the glosses that were inserted interlinearly, uh, see the two lines under the last line of the martyrology, and after he had finished the material in the right margin, which interrupts the first line of the material in the lower margins. The material in the lower margins then, he again uses references to the lemata to direct the reader towards the correct place in the main text. And in this case, there are no marginalia below the commentary material. On page 80, which contains the second half of the martyrology for January, we see another change in tack. The information from Bede is now found in the right margins in square boxes drawn up in whitish ink, uh, as well as at the bottom of the page together with uh, marginal poetry. He also already starts his commentary material above the martyrology, but probably only after he had finished copying the martyrology and the smaller glosses that go with it. 
we can see in the right margin how the long commentary material moves around the smaller glosses that extend from the interlinear space, as well as around the citations uh, from Bede uh, in the utmost right margin um, uh, and the material in the lower left margin. Sorry for throwing all these margin references uh, to you. Uh, it will probably be clear in the printed version. Uh, the commentary material is again introduced by the lemmata, uh, referring the reader to the main text. On page 81, where the martyrology for February starts, we again begin with marginal material from Bede, and then some overflow commentary for uh, January. It seems like this may have been done by Moraha before he started working on, Jan on February this time, as the martyrology seems to start a good few uh, centimeters lower on this page than on the previous two pages. We also see again that the glosses mostly start interlinearly and then move into the right margin, again flowing around the probably previously written down squares in the right margin with the citations from Bede. The way this happens for the gloss on the 8th of February is interesting as it contains a, a lemma and is quite long, uh, which suggests that it was added after the shorter glosses has, have been written. This is confirmed by the fact that the scolium actually moves upward in the right margin rather than downward, where it would have clashed with a longer continuation, uh, with the continuation of a longer interlinear gloss. Note also here a correction by Murcha, the Na of the Anamit, uh, which seems to have initially been forgotten by Murcha and only later inserted after he had finished the gloss uh, surrounding the line. Another interesting thing about this page is that we see Murcha using Signe de Rembois for the first time. Firstly, here for the interlinear gloss relating to the 10th of February, um, the first gloss, which deals with the lemma King Hirna from the main text, breaks off exactly at the point where the lemma for the next gloss, dealing with Glacia Maida, uh, begins, showing us that Murcha kept an eye out with regard to the smaller glosses to make sure they start near the appropriate lemma. This was particularly important for these smaller glosses since they did not contain lemma references in themselves, like the longer ones do. The second uh, signe de renvois is used on the line below, where a gloss on Kaid is somewhat awkwardly positioned, as it seems to have been added after the gloss below had already been written. This would explain why it could not be continued where it had started, and he had to refer us to one of the margins. Finally, at the bottom of the page, we find a poem probably linked to the 6th of February, uh, where the signe de renvois sends us upwards for the final line of the poem. This also shows how strict Morcha was in where the last line of a page could be, as there would have been plenty of space uh, in the lower margin to insert that final line. If we try to establish a working method for Morcha looking at these first four pages, it seems as if he first copied the martyrology, the information about the columns and timekeeping from Bede, perhaps together with the shorter glosses. For these shorter glosses, he kept a close eye on the lemmata that they belonged to and broke them off if they could extend beyond the next gloss lemmata. He then used Signe de Renvois to direct the reader to the place on the page where he had continued the gloss. Only then did he move on to copying the longer scolia. He makes sure not to fill the entire page with all his material, despite the fact that this sometimes means he has to include notes on several pages, uh, several pages away from the lemma that there are uh, supposed to illuminate uh, in overflow. This tactic perhaps ensured that the marginal citations and poetry continued to stand out as the decorations they may have been uh, intended as. There are some clues that confirm this uh, modus operandi. First of all, there's the shape of the marginal material in the right margins. Now we've already seen that this material flows around the shorter glosses for the month of January, and this is a trend that actually continues for other months. 
I will not go through all the examples here, uh, but two examples might illustrate it further. Uh, on page 88, we see this gloss on the 22nd of May move out of the way for an interlinear gloss uh, in the, next, uh, the line next to it. On page 90, for the gloss on the 21st of June, um, uh, it moves into a nice triangle to avoid clashing with the interlinear gloss that continues from the line next to it. The same goes for the citations from Bede, as shown here on page 86, where the notation sol in toros, or tauros, uh, a notation which is not in, in Stokes, interrupts the long uh, note on the 17th of April in the right margin. Secondly, there is one page where it seems we can see Moraha changing ink or quill or both. I will leave this to the qualified codicologists and paleographers uh, in the room um, in, the, in the order in which we hypothesize. So we see a light brown ink used for the interlinear glosses, which then continues into the right margin and changes halfway through this gloss on the 20th of April into a darker ink. Uh, this is currently still somewhat tentative and out of my comfort zone, so I hope uh, to be able to check this in the manuscript at some stage. Lastly, and perhaps the clearest clue um, uh, confirming our suspicions is the final two pages of the Martyrology proper, containing the Martyrology and glosses and notes for December. Stokes says about this in his 1880 edition, the notes of the Leora Brack copy of the Failure Sees, as we have seen, at December 6. The margins of pages 101 to 102, thus left vacant, are partially filled by miscellaneous notes in Irish or Latin or both in the hand of the scribe. Stokes then uses glosses from the Laud, Rawlinson and Francisca manuscripts to fill the void. We are left to guess the reasons for the lack of glosses uh, for this month. Uh, Murcha's exemplar perhaps did not contain them, uh, as it is common for the amount of glosses in scolia to decrease towards the end of a text. Perhaps it was also a matter of time and traveling for him, as we know he moved about a lot. Um, it is in any case not something that can be related to any of the existing copies of the commentary as all manuscripts have material for December, with the exception of 23p3, which has nothing for December, not even the Martyrology. Now, the first page of December that you see here actually still looks quite similar to the other pages we have seen. It has citations from Bede at the top, some interlinear glosses and some scolia in the margins, uh, and poetry at the bottom margin. However, not all of the scolia are clearly related to the Martyrology, uh, as is noticed by Stokes, and some of them are probably filler texts. Uh, the second half of December, however, uh, is more interesting, as we see here a confirmation of our suspicion. Mordecha had written out the poetry at the top and the bottom, as well as uh, the martyrology and the information about the calends, um, uh, which he then separated out uh, with uh, uh, dancing lines uh, and boxes, uh, despite the fact that there was nothing to separate the main text from on this page. This modus operandi, where the martyrology was so clearly copied first, perhaps at the same time as the shorter glosses, but probably not together with the longer material, may lead us to wonder whether the martyrology and the commentary were even copied from the same exemplar. It seems likely that Morcha may have had access to an exemplar containing the martyrology and perhaps the shorter glosses, as well as to a separate exemplar containing a Catena-like commentary to the Federe, each entry beginning with a lemma uh, which he himself then combined or recombined in the Leauerbeck. Again, for this too, there are some clues that point into that direction. First of all, the lamenta that uh, Murcha uses to introduce each individual note are often slightly different from the actual lemma in the martyrology next to it. Often these differences are small uh, orthographic variants that he might have potentially introduced himself. These just show that he was not copying the lemma letter by letter from his main text, but that he may have changed their orthography to his preference, either consciously or unconsciously. 
Two examples will suffice here. On page 79, we see uh, for the 9th of January, Aile Gag Gondlagne, uh, where uh, Aile is spelled uh, in one case with LG and an I for the unstressed vowel, uh, and in the other case with LL and an E for the unstressed vowel. On page uh, 87, the lemma referring to the uh, text for the uh, 9th of May contains a scribal error uh, in the commentary. Uh, the main text reads Folshu uh, Group, um, and then the lemma is Folshu Group. Um, perhaps a scribal error introduced by Murucha, perhaps a scribal error that was already in his exemplar. There are also some examples, however, where the lemmata seem to be clearly based uh, on a different version of the martyrology, most of them relating to a variation in the spelling of foreign names. On page 78, for the lemma of the 4th of uh, January, uh, the name Aquilinus is spelled uh, either in a very Latinate version with a Q and a U, or in a very Irish version uh, with a C. This is not a variant that occurs uh, in the main text of any of the other martyrologies that have come down to us, although Rawlinson B505 uses a CQ uh, plus abbreviation uh, marker that could, of course, um, cause confusion. On page uh, 89, for the 16th of June, we find the difference between uh, the spelling of the name uh, Criticus uh, with a G and a C, which is, in fact, a variant reading occurring in manuscript 23p3. A last example may be found on page 90, where the main text for the 22nd of June um, uh, gives us the name Alphaeus as Alpei, uh, where the, rema, the lemma reads Alphae with an F, uh, an orthographic variant um, not recorded in Stokes, but in fact occurring in manuscript F. That is the Franciscan manuscript. Additionally, a variant version of the main text recorded in a short lemma as well as in a gloss itself can be found on page 79, where the main text reads Badilshu, that was dearest, which was marked by Murakha as having the alternative reading No Badiksu, uh, that was highest. In the margin, we see the gloss on this line also using the lemma Badiksu, which was not in Murakha's main text, rather than the lemma Badilshu from the main text. This variant is recorded in Stokes' critical apparatus in both editions. Uh, this is, in fact, not the only alternative reading recorded by Murakha, uh, who seems to have had access to variants and treated them as a true philologist. On page 84, for the 20th of March, we find the gloss No Neve Epskop um, for the reading in the main text, Noiv Epskop. Uh, this variant reading is not recorded in any of the manuscripts in either of Stokes' editions, uh, nor have I been able to find them in uh, any of them. On the same page, we find the gloss No Dalach for the 23rd of March as a variant reading for Kosloach, uh, which is a reading that is recorded in Stokes for manuscripts Rawlinson B505 and NLI G10. For the 15th of June, on page uh, 89, we find that Morgha notes the variance between Komorhoil and Komorval, um, a fact that was referenced by Stokes in his critical apparatus in 1905. The main text in the Dalabrek uh, reads Komorval, uh, which agrees with manuscript F. For the 13th of May, on page 87, uh, we even find a whole alternative line, which includes an alternative name to be fitted into a quatrain, where the main text reads After long bitter crosses, a hexadent six hundreds, the gloss reads Vel Zik, or No Zik, Tigernach Roeshur Shashur Archekedov. Translated in Stokes as Tigernach, uh, thou should snow, six on six hundreds, that is Tigernach Dareche. This is not a variant um, uh, that I have been able to track in any of the existing manuscripts, uh, nor is it recorded in the 1905 uh, critical apparatus of Stokes. 
it gets more intriguing, however, when on page 86, uh, for the uh, 28th of April, we find two entire alternative quatrains, uh, neither of them recorded in any of the existing manuscripts, uh, and these two were included in Stokes, uh, by Stokes in his 1880 edition, but not in the critical apparatus of his 1905 edition. Murcha then seems to have had access to an exemplar containing the Martyrology, uh, a Catena-like commentary, uh, and two exemplars with other versions of the Martyrology, providing his variant readings. It is, however, not unlikely that he used even more sources and exemplars in compiling his impressive commentary. The many poems used in the margins, for example, do not appear uh, in most of the other commentary versions, but they do often appear in the poetry collections associated with the Fevere in the two Brussels manuscripts. Some of these poems have been edited by Stokes and some of them have not, as for example this uh, poem on page 88, which was apparently sung by Mayo Madog. There is also additional material uh, on timekeeping included in Murcha's version of the commentary, uh, which is also not uh, in Stokes. On page 90, for example, we find two paragraphs on the calculation of Easter, uh, sandwiched between a note on the 13th of June and the 16th of May. Uh, neither of these uh, paragraphs are found in the other commentaries, um, and they only seem to have a loose connection with the Fevere in general, in the sense that they deal with timekeeping and Easter, um, uh, and a very loose connection with the the page on which we find them, which is the page for June, which in most calculations is uh, a long way away from Easter. In the light of the many sources that Moraha could have combined in creating his commentary, we might also interpret the chronology of the famous notes left by Moraha that have allowed us to date the choirs and the progression of the manuscript as a whole. As we saw earlier, all the dates in the two choirs of the Fehler Eingesse seem to center around one winter, more specifically the winter of December 1408 and probably January 1409. However, the order in which the notes appear hops from Christmas back to the 12th of December to January and then back to the 13th of December, which is probably most easily explained by Moroha going back and forward over the choirs to collect material from different exemplars, starting with the martyrology and perhaps bead, marginal poetry, and then including the commentary and other related material. The idea that Moroha is a learned and trained scribe would source his material from, one than, uh, from more than one exemplar is of course more than plausible despite the fact that almost all manuscripts we still have of the Federe uh, contain it and the commentary on the same page, uh, there is other external support for the thesis that the commentary to the Federe existed as a separate Catena-like text, as did other texts associated with the Federe. <clears throat> First of all, there's Rollinson B5 of 12, which I already referred to, and which contains the preface, the prologue, the epilogue, and the commentary, but not the body of the Federe itself. While this manuscript has lost some leaves, the layout of the commentary in this manuscript, with its orderly two-column layout and the clear lemma referring to the beginning of each, each section, suggests that this may very well be our only example of a Catena commentary to the Fehler Eingesse. More evidence for the individual existence of elements of this text can be found in Brussels 5100-04, which presents us with material uh, related to the Fehler, the preface, the prologue, the epilogue, the commentary, the body, uh, and even the poem, even Citizen Amne, but not in chronological order, and also as separate sections. Despite the fact that the earliest manuscripts in the tradition of the Fehler, including the Leauer Brack, present us with a unity of preface, prologue, text, commentary, and epilogue, it seems that it is more likely that these texts at an earlier stage functioned as satellite texts orbiting the Fehlere proper, being able to exist with it, but also separately from it. Copyists like Morche in the 15th century must then have made an effort to unite or reunite the material as one whole, 
apparently because they or their readers felt the need to see everything together rather than in separate manuscripts or choirs. This brings us then to a point where we can attempt to answer some, some of the questions I posed at the beginning about the modus operandi of Morha, about his exemplars and about the usage he envisioned for it. His modus operandi seems to have been to begin work with the martyrology and timekeeping. He would then add more material in the margins of the page, sometimes related, sometimes to our eyes, not so much, uh, to the martyrology itself. This could be notes from the commentary, decorative poems in the margins, but also other types uh, of notes relating to timekeeping or even alternate readings of the main text. This particular way of working together with the evidence from the lemata allows us to deduce that he was probably not working with one exemplar. It is more likely that he was copying the martyrology, perhaps together with the shorter glosses from one exemplar and the commentary and other additional material from other sources. Such a hypothesis would explain the back and forth nature of the chronological notes left by him in the two choirs that contained failure. Such a hypothesis might also have implications for further research. For example, if anyone would be so brave as to try and attempt a stemma for the failure, we have to take a very close look at how the individual elements of the text could have moved through time. It might also provide us with another glimpse of the impressive MacEagon library, where I hope it is still likely that Moroha copied this text. Um, is it this library where we find the Feder Eingesse and its satellite text, kept and transcribed separately for study purposes? Was this the default for such an educational setting, and does the fact that Moroha felt the need to combine or recombine the material into one whole point to a different type of use and readership? And here we run into the eternal conundrum where, in trying to answer some questions, we only unearth more. This, however, is very much the beauty of the commentary to the Feder Eingesse that was created by Moroha. This incredibly rich, complex and comprehensive collection of material leaves us with a lot more to explore. And the only thing we can do is to follow the advice as laid out in the prologue. And I thank Chantal for pointing out its aptness to me, um, is to search our booklets and go without neglect. Thank you very much. <laughs>